0: If you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. word was already read to you earlier this morning. The series is called True Gospel. The book is the book of Galatians, the text under consideration this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The first four messages in this ten-part series through the book of Galatians is going to be focused on Grace. The last six will be focused on the power, presence, and work of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I'll begin, as I have the last couple of weeks, by reminding you of the gospel. The gospel, it is the good news that by faith alone, your sin is imputed to Christ, and by grace alone, His righteousness is imputed to you. Now, each and every week, we try to clarify that by adding something to that statement, not to embellish the gospel, but rather to clarify the gospel. For example, we have already seen that it's important to realize that regeneration or the faith you express in the gospel, that regeneration, that coming to life, obviously precedes faith. The very first step in salvation is when the Holy Spirit, by His power alone, makes alive that which was dead. It's a work of God. And this morning what I'd like to do is clarify something for you because not only have we said that it is God's righteousness that is imputed to us or covers us as opposed to being injected into us to make us better, it is also important for us to realize the difference between His active obedience and His passive obedience. Now, these are two absolutely crucial aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, And at our church, we talk a lot about the active righteousness of Christ. He is the second Adam. He is the one who came to obey everywhere that Adam failed. He fulfills his covenant perfectly, and as a result, all of that righteousness, all of that law-keeping, everything that stands true to this very day, which is obey the law and you will live, was fulfilled in Christ. And He gave us that righteousness. But there is also something we call the passive righteousness of Christ. And the word passive, maybe it makes us think that it doesn't require much effort. We think of maybe being passive. But the word really comes from another word, which means His passion or His suffering. So not only was He active in His righteousness in fulfilling the law for us, but He also in His suffering suffered completely and totally the punishment that we should suffer as lawbreakers. Why is it that Christ had to live this perfect life for 33 years on earth during the incarnation? Because he had to fulfill all righteousness, and then he had to die on the cross. He had to become cursed for us and become a curse for us so that He could be killed and in so doing put sin and death and hell to death. This is as important as His act of righteousness. And so, when we talk about the gospel and we talk about all that Christ has done for us and the good news of it, it is both in His active and passive righteousness imputed to us. Now, this morning, As we begin chapter 2 of the book of Galatians, I want you to understand that we're going to get into this issue of the law. And for many of us who uh, maybe grew up in in kind of traditional Christian upbringings, whenever we heard the law, we, we sort of thought of, well, the Old Testament law. We thought of something that the Jews had to follow. It was something that had to do with sacrifices and ceremonies. It was something that had to do with not having mixed fabric. It was the reason why your parents were able to tell you you're not allowed to have a tattoo because of something in Leviticus. It was the reason uh, why we sort of looked at the Jews as having their own almost sort of religion, and some people took it to an extreme and said their own system of salvation. And then we over here have something entirely different. Some of us were even raised in churches where they would talk about something called a dispensation of law and a dispensation of grace, as if God had two different plans of salvation. And so we don't teach that at this church, and instead what we want you to understand is that the law is a good thing, but the law is supposed to be understood in its proper context. And the way we understand that is that there is the law in three parts and the law in three uses. Fair enough? The law in three parts, the law in three uses. And this morning, just as we begin, I would like to make that an area that we would clarify. First of all, the law in three parts. There is the first part of the law, which is called the moral law. And the moral law is God's eternal righteous law synthesized in what's called the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. So the first part of the law is moral. We call it the moral law, and it is made up of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you want to get bonus marks in the exam later, you can know that the 10 commandments are broken down into what we call the two tables of the law, the first four applying to our relationship with God, the last six our relationship to our fellow man. But I'm not going to test you on that, that's just bonus. The second part of the law is what we call the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law were all of the rituals that the Jews had to obey, all of the sacrifices, all of the festivals. All of the ways in which they had to show over and over again to themselves and to everybody else that they could never attain to the righteous standard of God's law. That's why they were constantly washing themselves and they were constantly unclean. Remember the word unclean if you read that in the Bible? How many times in the Old Testament you read the word unclean? How many of you have read that and thought to yourself if I was a a Jew living back in this time, I would never be clean? I, I would never be clean. I would always be guilty of, of something, and that's exactly the point. It was meant to remind you that you could never live up to the holy standard of God's law, but it was also a way that God used to bring you to Him, to obey Him, to make yourself right with Him. He accepted it, even though it didn't fully satisfy, and everybody knew that. But He said, for now, trust me. Bring the animals, sprinkle the blood, and your sins will be atoned for. Why? Because it was looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment of all of those animal sacrifices. And that's why we have the book of Hebrews, which helps us to see what all of that pointed to and was all fulfilled in who? In Christ. He is the one who came, not only to be the better Adam to fulfill everything that Adam failed, but to be the better Moses, the one who was the intercessor, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own blood coming before the Father and before the holy judge of the universe. So that's the ceremonial law. The third part of the law is the civil law. The civil law was the way that the country organized itself. It was a theocracy. Are you familiar with the word theocracy? It means to live under God as your leader. There's different types of government. Uh, There's a theocracy, there's a monarchy. If you've got a monarchy, you're under a king. Uh, there are republics, there are democracies, there are different ways in which people govern themselves. Uh, There are totalitarian regimes, uh, uh, there are oligarchies, there's all kinds of them. In the case of the Old Testament Jews, God set it up where He said, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to organize society. And the civil law applied to how they treated one another, how they functioned in society. So, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the worship And the civil law, how it was governed. Now, what about the uses? It's a little bit different. Those are the parts. Now, the uses of the law. The first use of the law, and this is an important one, we'll call it a mirror. There's a lot of different ways that the reformers would talk about this. But one of the best ways is to think of it as a mirror, okay? The first use is a mirror. That means that when you read that law, you hold it up and you realize that you are not what that law requires. Most of you have looked in the mirror this morning. Amen? You got up, you looked in the mirror, and as a consequence of looking in the mirror, you got to work. Some of us took a little longer than others. I was in line not too long ago, and there was a person in front of me, and they took their phone, and they put it on video, and then they reached around to the back of their head, And then they went around and they watched the video to get a full 360 view of what they looked like. I mean, we have really gotten to the point where we can can relate to this. The law is a mirror, it exposes everything about us. It's like one of those scanning machines that you walk into when you're getting on an airplane and you go like this and it gets everything. And it reveals the ways in which we have literally failed to live up to God's moral standard. It is not meant to drive you into despair, it's meant to drive you to Christ. It's not meant to drive you to despair, it's meant to drive you to Christ. Because we understand how the law was fulfilled in Christ, now we're not driven to despair, we're driven to Christ and to thanksgiving that He did this for us. But there's a second use of the law, and I'll call it a curb. All right? Sometimes people call it a curb. What's a curb? Well, some of you know what a curb is because it tells you when you're done parking. You back the car up and you scrape the wheels right along the curb. I'll try not to be judgmental here. But that's your idea, right? Oh, that's the end. That's the limit. That's as far as I can go. In some ways, it acts as a curb in society. Aren't you thankful? Regardless of your political position, there's no Christian political party, there's no right-left differentiation I'm making, but I'm saying, aren't you grateful, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, that you live in a country where it is wrong to murder each other? Aren't you thankful? I don't care if you're on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum politically, everybody agrees, praise the Lord, that I live in a society where it's against the law for someone to just come up and kill me or my family. I'm thankful for that. It's not like that in every other country. Well, what is that? That's a curb. Did did, did mankind and his sinfulness just come up with that as a good social construct? No. That's because God, even in unbelievers, it says, His Word, His law is in them. It's part of natural law. It's part of general revelation. It's part of what makes sense even to unbelievers. So, it serves that way to keep things more or less in some degree of civility. It's not enough to save but it is certainly enough to make society more pleasant. And then there's one more use, not just the moral in the sense of this mirror, not just this curb in society, but there is also what I like to call the map or the guide. Once you are a Christian and a follower of God, the law, His written word, is a guide for you. Not only the moral law, because we understand that, that's very clear, but we also understand the intention of the ceremonial law and the intention of the civil law, and we can draw relatively helpful parallels to that in terms of a guide. We're no longer under it that way. We are not, remember the word we used the other week? Theonymists, if you were in our members' meeting? Uh, we are not trying to impose old covenant law on unbelievers. Instead, we understand that God's heart is revealed through that, and that we use His law as a guide. And that's why Jesus, in His ministry, not only reiterated the Ten Commandments, but also clarified the heart intention behind them. And then in regard of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, He said the Sabbath is not some external thing. In fact, I am the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment of that Sabbath rest. So, this is how we understand the law. It's three parts and it's three uses. Now, why would I go into all of that at the beginning of this message? Well, because if you don't understand that, it's going to be hard for you to to, to grapple with what's going on in the book of Galatians. Because Paul is writing Galatians early on in his ministry, I think. There's a little bit of debate about this, but I think it's very early on in his ministry maybe even prior to what happened in Acts chapter 15 with the council that talked about the Gentiles and what was going to be expected of them. And Paul writes this letter in order to clarify for believers who are Gentiles what is the nature and uh, limits of the law. So, when I think about you all, I am preaching to a group of Gentiles who, who might be tempted to think that they should follow some sort of Jewish Mandate, and it's helpful for me then to want to clarify for you what is the law, your relationship to the law, and how do you as Gentiles need to understand it? That's why Galatians is such an important book. And I'll let you in on a little secret it's all part of a plan. See, the reason why we went through the books we did in the order we did over these last few months is because I think we all need to understand this. To start with Romans and then to go to Hebrews and then to James and then to Galatians, Lord willing is going to give us all a much bigger, fuller, better understanding of the distinction between the law and the gospel and how all that plays out in our efforts to live lives of gratitude as the Lord helps us to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's dive in to chapter 2, first 10 verses, main point of the text, liberty and generosity build unity. That is the point. That is the authors and the Holy Spirit's and the Scriptures' main point in this section of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, liberty and generosity build unity. So let's begin by looking at the first section. This is in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, and we're calling this a common freedom. The next part will be in verses 6 through 10, which is a common mission. A common freedom, verses 1 to 5, a common mission in verses 6 through 10. Please join me. This is God's Word. Then, after 14 years, I think we probably need to pause for a moment. If Paul took 14 years, we can take 14 seconds. This is the time in Paul's life and ministry when he is back up in and around his hometown of Tarsus. Tarsus was in the province of Cilicia, and this is where Paul was after his conversion and his three years in Arabia. Paul was camped out in the northwestern part, and he was away from all the stuff that was going on down in Jerusalem. In fact, he was, as we'll see in a moment, linked up with another church up there in Antioch. For the children, I put a map in there for you, so you can actually look at this area that we're going to be talking about here the city of Tarsus, the city of Antioch. And maybe you grown-ups might want to grab a copy of those bulletins for your own sake or look it up in your Bible. How many times do you see the pastor tell you to turn to the book of maps? Well, maybe this morning you can do that and you can see where this is and you can put your eyes on it. But it says here that during this 14 years, he's up in that area doing ministry. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Now, up doesn't mean north, okay? Up means that when you went to Jerusalem, you went to a higher elevation. So he's actually going down south to Jerusalem, but to get there, you have to go up. Confusing, isn't it? But that's the difference. He's going south, but he's going up. And he's going there with Barnabas. And I know Barnabas is with him because we don't have time to get into it all, but if you go later on to Acts chapter 11, you'll see Acts chapter 11, very, very important to know the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11 is when word got out that Paul, who used to be Saul, had been converted and was doing ministry up there in that area of Tarsus, and the elders and the apostles, they send Barnabas up there to check it out. Remember, Saul was the one who was killing Christians. Saul was killing Christians. And so the apostles are like, Barnabas, go check it out, make sure he's real. If you're Barnabas, you're thinking, really? Thanks. Thanks. Do I get to go with, like, a bodyguard or anything? Like, go make sure he's not really killing Christians anymore. But he goes up there, and he's amazed to see what Paul is doing, and he's so excited about it that he actually says to Paul, let's come down into Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas spend a year in Antioch preaching the gospel. Why Antioch? Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. It was extremely strategic. And Paul was a strategic minister. He went to the large cities knowing that if he could do work in the big city, it would then work its way down into the rural areas and the townships. And so Barnabas and Paul start doing ministry in Antioch, and word begins to spread that, yes, this man really is converted and changed. And so he takes Barnabas with him, and he adds another guy named Titus. Titus was a Gentile. Barnabas was a Jew. So I want to make sure we're clear on this. Paul goes south from Antioch, up in elevation to Jerusalem. He takes Barnabas, who is his ministry partner there, and a guy named Titus, who was a convert. We know that from Titus 1.4. And Titus is a Gentile. And he says, all right, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to have a representative from the Jews, a very well-respected minister of the gospel, and a representative from the Gentiles, not just any representative, but an uncircumcised representative. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish law, on the eighth day, every child, every male child was circumcised. And so, if you were not circumcised, uh, you were considered to be outside of the covenant, outside of God's covenant with his people. And so this was a very controversial issue back then because you had some people who were saying, if we're really going to be God's people, shouldn't we also require circumcision? I mean, if it was that important in the old covenant, shouldn't we be doing that in the new covenant? And Paul says, no. And if anyone should know, it's Paul. Remember, he's a Pharisee. But Paul brings Titus with him. And he says, let's go down. I want to see, I want to see what kind of reaction they get from looking at you. I've got Barnabas with me. And I'm circumcised. But I want to bring Titus. And I want to see what they say about him. And so he goes down. Or up, as verse 2 says, in elevation because of a revelation that was set before them though privately before those who seemed influential. So what did he do? He takes a small group of these leaders, we don't know exactly how many, but he goes up to Jerusalem, he gets a revelation from God who says to go, and as an apostle you can get revelations, and he goes then to meet with them privately to talk to the influential ones. And what he did was he said to them, I'm here because God has sent me. I have a direct revelation from God. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because I'm concerned about your opinion of my ministry. I'm not here because I'm unclear on the gospel. I'm not here because I love hanging out with celebrity apostles. I'm here because God has sent me here. And there's a reason, and it begins to unfold as he has these meetings. He says that I am going to set before them, after that parenthesis, what? The gospel. Specifically, he is going to set before them the good news. That's what gospel means. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the good news that by faith alone your sins are imputed to Christ and by grace alone his righteousness is imputed to you. That's the good news. That's what Paul was preaching. And he says, I am proclaiming it or preaching it among the Gentiles. And it's very interesting that he says that. Just to be clear, in case you're maybe a very uh, tuned-in reader of God's Word, you might say, but wait a minute. Wait a minute, John. I've read read Acts, and and what's clear is that even during Paul's ministry, he was always beginning his ministry by preaching in the synagogues? How can you say he's preaching to the Gentiles when he goes to the synagogue? That's a great question. And uh, the answer is this. When he says, I'm preaching among the Gentiles, he's in Gentile territory. He's in Gentile territory. But Paul's strategy was really interesting. Because he was a Pharisee, because he was a high-ranking Pharisee, he could cruise in to any synagogue and be welcomed as the preacher. I mean, he had all the credentials. He's like one of those guys, you know, who, who, who has the, the, the key card that has clearance for everything. You know, you can just walk up to anything, and it's like, bleep, and he can open up any door. That's Paul. Paul had one of those. Well, not really, but you can imagine, kind of like one of those. And he can go into any synagogue, and they would just give him the pulpit. They would say, welcome, come on up here. And what he would do is he would go and he would explain the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. He was what we call a magisterial reformer. He wasn't out there planting churches, building new buildings, renting a space in a strip mall, calling it Galatian Church. Instead, he was going into the synagogues. He was going into the areas where he had access, preaching the gospel, normally causing a riot, almost getting killed, and then thrown out. But then he takes the people that believe that gospel and planted a church, and that's how you have Gentile churches with Jews in them. That's why he's able to say that I was preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, not exclusively to Gentiles, but eventually to Gentiles through the portals that he had. And so he says to them that I've been proclaiming this among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Now, what does that mean? Remember, the main point is it's a common freedom we're talking about. He's not concerned about his understanding of the gospel, believe me. He isn't thinking, oh, maybe I've run in vain preaching the wrong gospel. That was never in a doubt doubt for him. What he was worried about, I think, was that these other apostles, these other preachers of the gospel wouldn't be willing to stand with him to preach a pure gospel that it is Christ plus nothing. That's the vain part. He uses the word only in 1 Corinthians 15 a couple times in the same way. It means to amount to nothing. Is this conversation going to amount to nothing? Am I going to show up in Jerusalem and all these Jewish apostles are going to say to me, you know what, Paul, this whole thing about preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, we think it would be a lot easier if you could just get them all circumcised and obeying the law, we could find a lot more common ground. We'd go a lot further with our program. Uh, The whole gospel thing would work out a lot better. If you could just just compromise in this one little area, it's no big deal, make them do it, and we would all be able to live happily ever after. What do you say? That's what he's worried about. And so he shows up, notice it, and he says, I don't want to run in vain, but, verse 3, it's a very strong contrast, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Isn't that interesting? You see, the great good news of this meeting was that Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Not not, not circumcised by Paul. Of course, Paul didn't circumcise him. What he's saying is that they didn't even force Titus to be circumcised. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why are we talking about this? This is a little weird. It's a little creepy. I've never heard the word circumcision so many times in one day. Here's the reality. This is massively significant. This is the moment in the spread of the gospel when it could have gotten completely derailed into a form of kind of quasi-Jewish gospel which imported the law back in on top of the very people that had been freed from it. This is massively important you need to give thanks every day that this is what happened and that it didn't go the other way by God's grace we are called to freedom from the law yet verse 4 because of false brothers now now just for a moment i want to talk about this false brothers normally the word brothers is used to talk about christians The word false, of course, means they're not really brothers. And you say, well, wait a minute, what is it? Are they brothers who are acting falsely, or are they false people pretending to be brothers? I think the context is clear. These are false Christians, false followers, fake followers. They are not genuinely converted people. Uh, They are instruments of Satan, and they are brought in to the church, secretly brought in slipped in, it says, to spy out. Neat word, huh? Means to down look, kind of creep around and find out what's going on. They are are in our midst. They are spying out what? What does it say? Our freedom that we have in Christ. What do false teachers always look for in your church? They look for a way to bind your conscience to something in the law that has nothing to do with the gospel but seems like it should. That's the nature of false teachers. They don't roll in and preach an entirely different doctrine. Most of them are smart enough to know that in any church with any degree of theological awareness, if they come in and they preach something that is clearly wrong, they'll be kicked out. But they come in and they offer something that seems to actually be a little bit better. I mean, if you're really serious as a Christian, wouldn't you want to also do this? I mean, I know it's just the gospel, but wouldn't it be great if it was the gospel and you dress differently, or and you did these practices, or you didn't do these practices, and you voted for this party, or and you did, and you did, and you did, because this is the Christian thing. Imposing something on, over, and above the gospel is how false teachers get a foothold, because I think in general, Christians want to do what is right to honor the Lord, and it's almost like there isn't enough here. The gospel's too simple, I think I put the quote in the weekender this week from Lloyd-Jones, and somebody had quoted him, and I've seen this all over the place, I couldn't find the source, and I hate quoting people from other people who quote people, and there's never a source. So I did listen to a sermon he preached out of Galatians 3.3, which said something very similar, which is that if you are preaching the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, and you're not accused of being an antinomian, you're probably not preaching the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I know you're thinking, what is an antinomian? An antinomian is somebody who says, there is no law, there is no moral restrictions. Go do whatever you want. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying to me? I can just be forgiven and then go live any way I want? See, that's the assumption some people make when they hear a gospel that is clearly preached in all of its glory and freedom. Of course, it's not what it says, because we understand that the third use of the law is that guide to holiness, how we would want to live before the Lord out of thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done for us. But to be accused of it is a good sign. Some of my favorite authors were accused of it. Richard Baxter accused John Owen of it. There's all kinds of people in church history that have been accused of being antinomian. Luther was one. And the reason is that they think the gospel of grace is just too good to be true. And Paul goes to meet up with these apostles in Jerusalem and says, Lord, I really hope that I don't encounter a bunch of apostles who say to themselves, it's too good to be true. Let's go back and tack on a little Jew in order to make it work for us, a little little Jewish sort of tradition to make it seem a little more palatable. Oh, Lord, I pray that's not what's going on. By God's grace, it wasn't. So, he says here, these false brothers have come in to spy out the freedom so that, this is the purpose clause, everybody, so that they might bring us into slavery. What do people want to do who add something to the gospel, some sort of behavioral trick, something you're not allowed to do or have to do? They want to bring you into slavery. They want to bind your conscience to obey their definition of godliness. He says here that by the power of the Spirit, by the boldness that comes to Him, that to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Absolutely clear that's not going to happen. We are not going to submit to that. That's what they brought into this meeting. We got people in and around Antioch and Tarsus. They're trying to get us to obey the law, and we're standing firm and saying no. And then to the Galatians, he adds this, so that, another purpose clause, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Do you see the connection there? It's the actual truth of the gospel that is at stake. When somebody brings in law, they are not just living to a higher standard. They are not just more moral. They are not doing any of that, which seems on the surface to be maybe attractive to some people who are wired that way. No, no, no. They are coming in and they are planting bombs in the very foundation of the gospel, and they are trying to blow it up. And Paul says it wasn't going to happen, not on his watch. So, liberty and generosity are what build real unity. Number one, a common freedom. Secondly, a common mission. Look at verse 6, arguably one of the most important verses in the text. It begins, and from those who seem to be influential… Pause right there. Who's influential? Well, it's these righteous apostles. I mean, if anybody's influential, it's them. I mean, we live in a day and age where just regular old preachers are influential. Just some guy that sold a bunch of books or has a radio program or a podcast all of a sudden gets elevated into, well, that's what he says. And people like me, just normal, lame pastors like me who don't do any of that stuff, have to contend with it. Because you say something out of the Bible and somebody walks up and they say, but wait a minute, it says right here something different. I don't care. You know? Influential. Back in those days, you had actual apostles, people who were getting visions from God, people who had been entrusted with writing the Holy Scriptures. And so Paul says, yeah, they're super influential. But notice what he says about them. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, just for a moment, if your if you're, if you're, um, um, personality type is like this, because mine is like this, what I first read was, I don't care what they think. Do whatever I want. I don't care about you apostles. I don't care about how, how influential you are. I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't care less. You aren't influential. You mean nothing to me. That's how I read it at first. And then, and then, and then I studied, and that's not what he's saying. I still think he's kind of wired that way. I don't think he cares too much. He doesn't really care what the important churches do or what the big churches do or what the well-known pastors do. It's like, I don't care. Let them do whatever they do. That's, I'm not pastoring that church. I'm pastoring this church. I think that's Paul's mindset generally. But here, it's very clear. I'll go back to it. He says, literally, what they were makes no difference to me because of God. Literally, it says, if I were to translate this, very, very literally, it says, the face of man God does not accept. The face of man, God does not accept. Imagine what he's saying. It doesn't matter to me that they're apostles because God doesn't look at the externals, the face, what's presented, the face of anybody, even an apostle. It doesn't even matter. Even an apostle. Remember earlier where he said, even if an angel comes and preaches another gospel, let them be anathema, let them be damned? How much more so just another apostle? it doesn't matter. And this was where he was getting his liberty from. He says, God doesn't care. God doesn't put them up on a pedestal. So I say, the rest of verse 6, so I say, who seems influential added nothing to me. He didn't need their endorsement, and they didn't add anything to him. They didn't burden him with more to do. But... Verse 7 should begin with the word, but. I don't know why some translations take it out. Very strong contrast. On the contrary, going the opposite direction, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, literally of the uncircumcision. Not a different gospel, but a gospel for the uncircumcision. The Gentiles when they saw that I was given the gospel to the uncircumcised in the same way that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. These these parenthetical parts are just hard to keep the flow, isn't it? But he says, listen, I'm going to the Uncircumcised, Peter goes to the circumcised, the very same person who gave apostolic authority to me also gave it to Peter. Everybody is to be reached, and we are preaching the same gospel. This is so helpful. And so, verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who were James and Cephas and John? This is sort of the original inner circle. Now, everybody know, knows who's, who James is. James is the brother of John. James and John, they were together, called Boanerges, sons of thunder. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, who was always with them? It was always James, John, and who? Peter. So if maybe there was a bonus question in your kid's bulletin that asked you what the name Cephas also means, it would be Peter. Peter. It's another word for his nickname. His nickname was Peter. His nickname was also Cephas. It just means stone. It means rock. His testimony that he gave about Christ being the Son of God was the rock, the foundation of the gospel. And so when James and Cephas and John, the original inner circle who seemed to be pillars, perceived, it means that they saw by experience, not just in their heads, but they they saw what, what Paul was doing. They saw what? The grace that was given to me. I love that phrase, the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship, literally the right hands of fellowship. Now, this is something that like Baptists have picked up as part of their membership process, and they say, come on, give the right hand of fellowship. And I used to say that myself, but I never knew what it meant, so I just stopped saying it. I don't even think we'd know what it meant here. I, maybe it was a handshake. Maybe it was like a high five. Uh, we don't know. But whatever it was, it was clearly like, you're welcome here. Like, I am extending my, my hand to you. I am welcoming you. We are one. We are brothers. And so he, he says to them, we are brothers. We are together. We are one. The right hands of fellowship were given so that purpose clause, again, if you're an underliner of such things, it drives the meaning of the text, so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Do you see the play on words there all the time? They go to the circumcised, they go to the Jews, we go to the Gentiles. Not a different gospel, just a different focus. And that's okay. You don't have to go to everybody. He says, I'm going to go and preach mostly to the Jews. I'm going to go preach mostly to the Gentiles. And together, the work gets done. This is not division. This is actually the common mission. And then, right at the end, verse 10, so interesting. Only, he says, they asked us, and again, the word so that is in there in the original. Another one of those hinna clauses. Only they asked us, so that, to remember the poor. Now, real quick. I mentioned Acts 11 earlier. In Acts 11, you also have the prophecy of a guy named Agabus who went up and he told them there was going to be this big famine in Judea. And so, Paul and the rest of the people up in the north, the Gentiles, the rich Christians around Antioch, they took a collection for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And as a footnote… If you go through the New Testament, the only thing Paul ever raised money for was for the poor. He would do this, and he would collect it, and then it would then be sent, and it was sent with him and Barnabas down to minister to the needs of these Jewish believers. Isn't that wonderful? Gentile Christians who have more money were raising funds so that they could help poor Jewish Christians. Far from from disunity, far from competition, far from animosity, there was a Beautiful, missional unity in the freedom of the gospel, and he says at the end, the very thing I was eager to do. If that's the only burden you're going to put on me, guys, that's awesome. I, I, I'd eat that for breakfast. We love doing that sort of thing. I would love to help you raise funds for that and make that happen. Now there is a lot more that we're going to unpack next week as it relates to the law, as it relates to what certain restrictions were or were not placed on Gentile Christians. We're going to look at Acts 15. There's so many fascinating things that we'll continue to unpack in the rest of this chapter. But if I can say just one thing before we turn to the Lord's Supper, it's this. There is a warning even for us in this. Number one, it's that faith is diluted when the enemy aims at undermining the gospel the faith is always diluted. It's another way of saying that, that something comes in to get mixed in with the gospel. Warning, don't let anyone mix anything else in with the simple, pure gospel. It's very common in churches where external conformity to cultural morality is their basis for eternal security. They're built up in the notion that as long as I keep performing at a certain level, I know that I'm secure and God loves me. That's a symptom. Number two, the practice itself is diminished. By practice, I mean that every true Christian was set apart ultimately for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that. That's, That's what we were set apart before the foundation of the world in our sovereign election to do. That's the consequence of our being saved. So believers don't just wait on the hilltop like Jonah, looking down on Nineveh, praying for destruction, (laughs) like some some people seem to like to do. Uh, They also don't just sort of busy themselves so much trying to, you know, turn the world into a a, a Christianized sort of situation where they think that's going to advance the return of Christ. Instead of making it their aim to do that, they are salt, light, grace, and peace, in this world of corruption and darkness and hopelessness and strife, and they become that stark contrast that causes people to ask about the hope that is within them. So, one of the things that we have the privilege of being reminded of this morning, brothers and sisters, is that the active obedience of Christ is our perfect obedience to the law and that his passive obedience pays the penalty and cancels the curse that fell upon us for breaking his law. It is that gospel and that alone which stands, and as we'll see next week, is something that is a grace that is actually worth fighting for, and we'll see how Paul did that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text this morning thank you for the privilege of understanding it anew i pray that we would be all the more committed to that pure even scandalous gospel of grace which seems to offer so much for nothing in return knowing that it is not free and it is not cheap but it costs you everything to secure it for us as we come now to the lord's table i ask that it would be a time of remembrance a time where we celebrate the great, glorious, good news of the gospel. May we conduct ourselves and receive it in such a way that brings you glory and honor for all that you have done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.